The views, information or opinions expressed in the following podcast are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Any information provided is of a general nature only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. In particular, you should seek financial advice prior to making a decision. Thank you for tuning in today. The most important budget in our lifetime has just been handed down. Never before has the pause button literally been pushed on our entire economy and the consequences in the short, medium and long term have been and will continue to be massive for all of us. Small to mid-sized businesses in particular have been heavily impacted. In many ways, SMEs are the backbone of the Australian economy. Do the budget measures handed down on Tuesday provide a path for them to recover and rebuild? Are there actually opportunities to, to do better than just rebuild, to potentially thrive? What action steps should business owners take based on the budget measures? I'm Luke Henningsen, and today I'm excited to host an eminent panel of experts to discuss and explore all of these questions, particularly as they relate to the challenges faced by business owners. Joining me here are Joseph Healy, Warren Hogan, and Frank Versace. Now, Joseph is co-CEO and co-founder of Judo Bank. Joseph is well known as one of Australia's leading senior bankers, and he has dedicated much of his extensive banking career to working with SMEs. Heading up Australia's largest business bank and SME franchise before establishing Judo as a new bank totally dedicated to SMEs. Warren Hogan is our panel's economics expert. Warren is well known for his many years as the chief economist of ANZ Bank. He has also been a key advisor to the Commonwealth Treasury and is industry professor at the UTS Business School. Frank Versace also joins us from Judo Bank. Frank is the Chief Relationship Officer at Judo, and he too has had a long career in working very closely with SME business owners. Welcome, everybody. Thanks, let's, yeah. let's start with a question for our economist, Warren, to set the context. Warren, you've analysed and reported on many budgets over the years. So framing the budget context for us, what do you see as unique about Federal Budget 2020? Thanks, Luke, and uh, thanks for having me on the panel today. Uh, this budget is unique for what I think are three key reasons. First of all, just the the magnitude and nature of the shock hitting this economy. It's 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 unprecedented that word of twenty twenty, um, and it's a it's a it's a quite a, a diabolical cocktail of economic and and health concerns, which is is driving our society. So, the, the budget has got to address these economic and health issues front on. The second point that makes it unique is. The fact that we don't have any monetary policy. Uh, we, we've had some rate reductions, interest rates are near zero and monetary policy is easy, but we haven't got the ability to cut interest rates like we basically have through most of the downturns of the last 30 or 40 years. So it's all about fiscal policy and this budget is that fiscal policy platform and the announcements we saw last night. Uh, the final point I'd make is there's huge amounts of uncertainty out there, um, whether we're looking at the global economy, the geopolitical situation, or the health situation. Now, I think we all hope this uncertainty is going to start to ease back as we finish 2020 and head into 2021, but we can't escape the fact that we are operating in, in quite a challenging economic and political environment all around the world. Yeah, so the economic outlook is uncertain. Um, I wonder how worried business owners should be. I mean, what shape are we actually in and how does Australia compare with other countries? 
Well, look, you know, comparatively, we are in great shape. I mean, it's very much been the Australian story for 30 years now, but the, the, the budget papers actually showed some really interesting analysis comparing the case count per million people with the, the hit to economic growth in the first half of 2020. And, and Australia's hit was around 7%. And, and the only country that the Treasury pointed to that bettered this was, was Korea at, at a 4% hit. But if you look at the similar kinds of countries and economies to ours, they sustained a much bigger hit. Even New Zealand fell 12%, Canada 13%, the US 10%, and the UK around 23%. So, you know, we've had we've sustained a big, big, unprecedented loss, much bigger than any of the recessions of the modern era, but much better than other countries. And I think that to add to that is is our health situation is. Is it, we're in much better shape. You know, obviously we've had the problems in Victoria in the last two months, but really our health situation is in, in, in pretty good position. So we're in a, we've got a great foundation for this recovery. Um, I think that's really important, but there are challenges. And I think it, it, it isn't going, getting as much attention as it probably should, but the great challenge is the economic policies that kept us going in 2020 have to be removed. Most importantly, the job keeper, and we're going to see an end of the bank monitorium. So the real challenge is with economic out output in Australia, 5% below pre-COVID levels, you know, how do we get that back quickly, given that we've got to also get rid of these emergency policies? And that's what this budget is, is all about, is, is how the government's going to support a re revitalization of the private sector economy in 2021 and beyond. How have you seen that support, Joseph and Frank, for your customers? Um, how would you rate the government's performance to date? And, and um, the, I guess we'd be good to talk about the, the, the fiscal strategy the government has chosen as well. And do you think it's the right one and the right right approach? Well, Frank, I might kick off and, and sure. pass the ball to you. I mean, I echo all the comments that, that Warren has made. Um, I think the government has done a commendable job, quite frankly, right back from the, the onslaught of this, the COVID crisis in March. Uh, they were very quick uh, with the various initiatives that be the signaled strength and support for small businesses. I mean, a lot of the initiative, early initiatives were, were developed on the run and, and perhaps not as successful. I'm thinking about the 50% the, uh, government guaranteed loan scheme, for example. Um, but the symbolism of a government that's, that, that, despite its its traditional political and economic ideologies, is facing into a crisis with its eyes wide open, and spending in a way that um, you know many uh, former members of the party would be uh, rolling around in their graves thinking about the degree of fiscal stimulus, but. To Warren's point, the, the options that the government had in terms of monetary policy simply had been exhausted. And the government has been, I think, very, very strong in signaling to the S with, through the job keepers, through the government loan scheme, through the announcements that were made last night, particularly around the 100% uh, write-off of investments up to $150,000. That's going to unleash a significant boom in investment so long as there is confidence in the economy. And that, that's the big, big uh, uncertainty in, my, in a world of huge uncertainty. Uh, it's, is this enough to fire confidence and get businesses thinking about investing again and thinking beyond COVID? Uh, 
that that's going to be the acid test. I, I might pass to Frank. Yeah, I, I think they have really interesting points. I, I did a straw poll of some of our customers this morning, just trying to understand the on the ground view of what some of the measures were. And it's clear that the government has moved from, you know, emergency measures such as JobKeeper to more strategic measures so, such as the instant asset write-off, looking to pr pr promote um, businesses to invest and employ. And going around the country talking to some customers, the, the difference in views was quite um, quite stark, actually. That, that, you know, as Joseph points out, this is designed to promote confidence. Um, and a number of the comments, particularly from Victoria, were given that a number of the measures are designed to uh, sort of promote demand and um, uh, that underlying demand was never an issue for uh, you know a cafe in um, in Melbourne it's the ability to actually open and trade and I think this goes to the heart of some of the comments that Warren was making that is so unique about this crisis the intersection of the economic aspects and the health aspects um, are really uh, sort of the, the elements behind whether businesses will actually have the confidence to utilize some of the measures that have been announced in the budget to 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 invest and employ which I think is the the underlying theme of many of the measures. They've, they've predicted, Treasury and, and the government have predicted a, a pretty sharp rebound next year, 4.75% they're talking, um, and then followed by 2.75% the year after that. Um, th that's a big, that seems like a big jump to, to, to me. I mean, did, what, what are your views on that, Joseph? Do you think that's- well, that Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really interested in, in Warren's views, but I, I, having looked at the assumptions on gross net debt, GDP growth, unemployment rates, uh, it, you're left with the impression that it's a very optimistic outlook in a, in a world where there are so many variables and so much downside risk. It, certainly over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. So I thought, well, in many ways, quite heroic um, forecast assumptions, but I'm really keen on, on uh, hearing Warren's expert view on that. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I think the budget measures, the, 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 what they've done here sets us up for a really strong recovery over the next two, three, four years. I think we can, we can have some confidence in that. The, the, the measures around business investment, the tax cuts, um, you know, th these are substantial, but the big uncertainty is whether or not that recovery is going to come in to full force in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the strategy here and the budget I think now confirms this is all about getting the economy back on its own two feet, getting us off JobKeeper uh, and getting us through the period when the bank monitoriums finish and, and what that produces, which I don't think we can really be confident of what that is. And the, and the big question is, 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 has the income tax cuts, the one-off payments to pensioners and the incentives to invest going to be enough to make up for that. We, we, we cannot forget the JobKeeper is the biggest economic policy lever pulled in peacetime in this country ever. It was putting, and the numbers last night confirm this, $12 billion, uh, $12 billion a month into the economy in terms of direct income support. Now that's going to be gone by March. And I, I am a bit concerned that we, we're going to have a bit of a soft patch early. And, and the government's running that risk because what they're doing is they're going to build momentum into 2022, in my view. I'm, I'm quite confident that unless there's some problem with the world economy or unless we get a, a deterioration once again in the health situation in the first half of 2021, that we will build that momentum. I'm just not confident that it's going to be strong early next year. I think we've still got a bit of a, 
a rough ride, a, a bit of a, a bumpy ride until the middle of 21, and then we build the build the momentum. And I think 2022 can be a really strong year. So I think the government's numbers are probably a year too early. I think the, the really strong year is 22, not 21. Warren, can I ask a follow-up question to that? Because um, a lot of the commentary and, again, sort of speaking to the, the businesses on the front line of this, there's, there's been some consistent themes in terms of questions that have come out. And, and one has been, given the volume of debt, um, and there is an acknowledgement this is absolutely the right sort of spending for, at the right time, but one of the questions that's been raised has been, have we got the balance right between the tactical uh, short-term necessity to... Uh, you know, promote demand, as we said, and the long-term sort of structural, you know, given the, uh, the, the opportunity from a political point of view to institute some reforms that these situations tend to provide, do you think the balance was right in this, in this budget? Look, I don't, uh, but as an economist, you know, there can't be too much structural reform. <laughs> um, the, the reality is they've put in, in, in place some important reforms, the insolvency reforms, the responsible lending reforms. These things are genuine reform, but they 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 did pull back on the, the stage three tax cuts. That's the reform of the tax system, the real simplification. We still got to wait for 2024 for that. And the reality is, and, and look, I could be wrong. There's a lot in this budget, but I haven't seen a microeconomic reform strategy that is cohesive. Now, this might form up, uh, and look, to be fair, the government's real focus is getting the economy back on its feet. But this is the time to do it, as we've seen with some of these these announcements in the in the last few weeks. So, look, I don't think they've 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 done as much as they could have. Um, I think they've got a lot of political capital. I'm not sure that political capital will be there in 12 months. And and given that an election's due in 2022, it could be harder to institute microeconomic reform. So I think there is a little bit of a missed opportunity there. But look, let's not be too hard on them. They have done some important structural reforms and they're planning on some more. So yeah, it's it's probably just, you know, a bridge too far for them. Just some, some, uh, some I guess, uh, uh, macro, more macro questions, um, maybe aimed at, at Warren as well. Um, will the large government deficits, um, I mean, the huge, will, will they actually lead to an increase in interest rates? Yeah, the short answer is is no. Um, you know, the, the funding of this economy happens at, at less than five years, and most of it at less than three years of, of maturity. Um, and the and the RBA has secured all of those interest rates and provided an anchor. Um, and if anything, in the last three or four months, we're seeing market interest rates, mortgage rates, and other lending rates actually come down a little bit to reflect the the expectation those rates will stay there for many many years to come. Um, the traditional concern, and, and we really are talking sort of 10, 20 years ago, that large government deficits will crowd out the private sector and put upward pressure on interest rates is not that valid in a world where we've got excess savings. Uh, and that's been a, a feature for some time now. But it's even less valid where we have central banks, including the Reserve Bank of Australia, who are prepared to come and use their balance sheet to provide liquidity to the market. And, and the, the Reserve Bank's made it quite clear that if the government runs into any problems with its funding program, which it should be noted, there have been zero problems so far. They are getting every bond away at a very healthy rate. Um, they'll do QE, QE full on. They'll go in and buy bonds in whatever volume it takes. So look, it, 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 there isn't that constraint that we once had perceived or real. 
So I don't think we should be worried about interest rates going up in any time in the next three to five years. And, and really, the, 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 the business investment incentives, that write-offs, uh, combined with cheap funding, is, is, a, is, a real, is a real potential supercharger for the business sector in the next two years. Game changer, right? That's what they're calling it. Um, what, what, about inflation? what about inflation? said that last night. <laughs> <laughs> but what about inflation, Warren? What's the, any concerns there or what, what can we expect? Look, it's very uncertain. The government's taking a very middle-of-the-road view on this. They've got inflation sort of one and a half to two, which is still below the RBA target, but which I think is a good outcome. Um, the real risk to the world economy and to the Australian economy in the next five years is deflation. If we get a deflation that sees wages go backwards with the high levels of private and now public sector debt, that is a, is a diabolical outcome. It is sort of the, the black swan that you do not want to have to address. So they're not anticipating that. I think the central banks of the world are doing everything they can to avoid that. And so the question becomes, is there a risk of inflation? I don't think there is. Their forecasts for wages are modest, sort of one and a half to two percent. And I think the pricing story in this economy for the next couple of years is going to be about price pressures in certain areas, whether it's because of supply chain bottlenecks or labour market bottlenecks, skills bottlenecks, what have you. You're going to get isolated little pockets of price pressure, which can be annoying for some businesses yep. and have profitability impacts. But I think generally speaking, uh, wages and prices are going to be quite well contained for, for the foreseeable future. Warren, can I pick up the, the comment you made around wages growth? A, a number of business owners would um, would see some sort of, um, you know, de-escalation of wage growth as a positive thing in their ability to grow. I think they've seen, uh, the, the, you know, the, the level of wages growth um, and the industrial system in particular as one of the handbrakes on their ability to to invest and grow just to continue that theme and to explain that concept more fully uh, in that context yeah well i think the trick here is that from a from a macroeconomic point of view you don't want wages to go backwards it's bad for demand in the economy and it's bad for people who have debts because it, it raises the real values of the debts but you want to cheapen up labor for business to encourage them to invest. So, so how do you pull off this sort of, you know, this this trick? And, and, and the way they're trying to do that is maintaining sort of some wage growth for income earners, but reducing the cost of labor through deregulation, through changes to industrial relations. And of course, you know, last night we saw the two wage subsidies that are going to replace JobKeeper, and they're much more modest than JobKeeper, which I think is important, but they're still there. So they're looking to cheapen up the cost of labour through direct policy action in the next year, as well as through a deregulation agenda, whether it's industrial relations or otherwise, while maintaining incomes for everyday Australians, which will keep demand in the economy. So, you know, I think we all should hope they pull that off because if they can, then, you know, again, an important sort of foundation to a, to a good, strong recovery heading into 2022. What are your thoughts, Frank, on, on, on that, just those those. Um, two initiatives that were mentioned. Um, do you, can you see them? How do you see them impacting on your customer base? And in particular, breaking maybe down, obviously, trades an impact, but what about services oriented businesses or uh, restaurants? Um, what are your thoughts there? So it's an interesting one. In terms of um, how this has been received, it really depends on who you are and where you are. You know, different industries in different geographies, because this is a crisis that has discriminated. You know, if, if you're a cafe owner in Victoria, 
that you have had a vastly different experience over the last three or four months than what you know the, the comparative business in Perth has experienced. And so there is there is a bit of nervousness about the withdrawal of JobKeeper in Victoria because you you know most businesses are still in lockdown and you know it, it was the psychological aspect of it is they're, they're finding it hard to understand what you know a trade-up looks like and there's you know confidence is still quite rattled in other parts of the countries I, I think a number of the measures um, that were announced last night are, are hugely encouraging and there's a number of businesses that see this as a as enormous opportunity to invest in the future so um yeah i, th I think this this you know the, the disparate way that um, different industries and different geographies is a really unique feature of what, what we've just experienced. And I think, um, you know, fiscal policy is necessarily blunt um, in terms of its application across geographies and industry. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's been really positive aspects to this, but um, there will still be some, some ongoing nervousness in the, in the more frontline uh, affected areas. What about state to state? How, how do you see the, the impact? You have mentioned it's discriminated. And we, we only have to look at the, the footage of, um, I'm based in Victoria, obviously. So we, you look at uh, footage from WA and it's like nothing's happening. Nothing's changed over there. They're all out there enjoying sport and the sunny weather. Um, what, what are the impacts from state to state? Um, and we, we heard about it in you know a number of the opening remarks. This is all about confidence and business confidence to invest and employ. And there are you know, stark differences as we um, circle around the country, particularly Victoria, which seems an obvious statement. Elsewhere, I think the initiatives contained within this budget will go a long way to inspiring confidence um, to, to do the necessary things. And, you know, I'm optimistic that um, with case numbers largely under control in Victoria and a reopening hopefully imminent, that that, that confidence will, um, will emerge in Victoria also. What about exporters, Joseph? I was, I was sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say the budget has got some assumptions on the borders, and you know the the the, the health assumptions are, are, are pretty pretty optimistic. They're not wildly optimistic, but a key part of it is that all state borders except for WA's uh, are down by the end of the year, and WA's will be down in in, in April next year. Um, so there's this sort of idea underpinning these expectations for the. For the economy that once Victoria comes out of this and 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 the and the progress so far is looking fantastic, but that that there will literally be you know back to normal by 2021, which is you know just a few months away. So it's if we can be on this path that the federal government is plotting, then that divergence of experience across states is is going to correct itself pretty quickly in 2021, I think. Thank you, Warren. Yes, I was just wondering, does the, the, the budget initiatives, do you feel, Joseph, do you feel that they, they help our exporters to be more or less competitive from an international perspective? I think it goes to confidence. It goes to global demand. It's, I, I agree with all the comments that I've made. I mean, if you're a business operator today, and, and putting aside the, the issue in Victoria, um, this, this creates a huge incentive to start thinking about investment uh, it, it, it creates an incentive to start thinking about hiring you know particularly the with those wage subsidies for the under 35s um, so I, I think in the, when with the income tax cuts and with a sense that that the government has enough firepower I think Warren mentioned earlier even though we're all 
uh, somewhat aghast at the level of uh, public sector debt relative to other major uh, economies, uh, we, we look in a really good position. So that suggests that if there was a need for more stimulus later down the track, then, then there's capacity to do that. So I, I, you know, I'm kind of looking, trying to think of where, where's the, the blind spot or where's the soft underbelly in this. You, you keep coming back to confidence and you keep coming back to the global, the geopolitical environment. I mean, the, the election in the US in a few weeks' time could have a material impact in the way that people feel about the world. If we get a change in, uh, in presidency uh, and a stronger, more mature approach to the US's leadership in the global economy and a reduction in the tension with China, uh, these, these are all things that have a, could have a bigger impact in, 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 in terms of confidence. Um, the one thing that does concern me, however, notwithstanding all of the positive news, is that we, we will get to March 21 and there will be um, what, what we're describing as unproductive, accrued unproductive liabilities that are not just deferred bank debt, but there are other creditor payments, lessors, landlord, tax office, and a whole range of other payments that, um, that, that have been kind of building up on the balance sheet that, that unproductive liabilities. Uh, they're going to crowd out the capacity potentially for bringing on incremental debt to invest. And so this is the problem that, that um, hasn't really found a solution as yet. And it is one that does concern me because you can be sitting with your small business or mid-sized business ready to go. But since the onslaught of, onslaught of COVID, you've accrued you know, a couple of million dollars of unproductive liabilities that you've got to solve for. And it crowds out your ability to invest in growth. So that's the that's the the cloud that that had been sitting on the horizon in my mind for quite some time. Thanks, Joseph. Let's let's talk about a subject that's close to to many Australians' hearts. Let's talk about property and property prices. Um, business owners often have property on the line with their banks, as everybody knows. What impact do you feel the budget will have on residential property prices, and how could that impact on the lending relationships of business owners? So I might, I might kick this one off because I think there's, there's two aspects to this and I'm, I'm more qualified to talk about the second part of that question than I am about the first, but I'll have a go at that anyway. Um, I, I think obviously that the performance of the residential property market is intrinsically tied to how we perform um, on the things we've already talked about. So if, if business um, is has the confidence to employ and unemployment drops, I think that puts a floor under any potential softening of the residential property market. Um, I might leave sort of further commentary on that to, to Warren and Joseph in terms of sort of forward projections on residential property. In, in relation to the, the impact this will have on um, the relationship of customers with banks, I, I think this has probably been, the fact that that question even gets asked is probably a disappointing outcome of how the banking sector has evolved over the last 20 years that, that you know, a potential softening in um, residential property prices prevents businesses from being able to invest when, um, you know, in a lot of cases, there are really strong business fundamentals that underpin the investment opportunity that businesses see and bankers to an extent have lost the ability to understand how business works, what a strong balance sheet looks like and what a, um, 
you know, what a creditworthy business looks like independent of the external security that often gets provided. And so, you know, I, I do think that the current environment presents significant opportunities for business. And um, I, I do think that those businesses, you know, in many cases uh, are able to stand on their own two feet. And, and that is the relationship that the, the banker and the customer should, should often have. Thanks. Did you want to weigh in, Warren or Joseph? Uh, well, I can I can sort of give you some perspective. I mean, there's some real positives for the property market, residential that is, um, and and more broadly property. Um, and and the main one is the fact that you know going back over the last eighteen months, interest rates have fallen quite a bit, and 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 they've not just fallen, but the central bank has told us they're going to stay there for a long time. So so we've got this process for many creditworthy borrowers with good good underlying sort of financial health that you know, that they, they can start to really think about factoring that lower funding cost in and, and that'll put upward pressure. And I think that's part of the reason we're seeing some pretty good outcomes at the moment. Um, the, other, the other interesting and important, I think, element here is that other assets are really highly valued. Um, equities are trading at one of the highest valuations um, of all time in America you really only could see it in the great technology booms of 1929 and 2000, more high valuations. So equities are expensive. And I think people who live in communities tend to have a, a greater ability to buy expensive property than expensive equities. So I think that asset valuation portfolio effect will help property over the next few years. Working against it here in the, in the short term is, is two things. One is that there's a lot of investor loans in monitorium at the moment, and we, we really don't have any visibility of where that'll finish up. But that's actually been the the one area that's that's been quite significant and and, and not talked about a lot actually. Um, more significant than SME loans um, in monitorium. Um, and then the other one is that we have got a challenged economy with elevated unemployment. So. Look, I think it, it's going to, it's it's not going to, I don't think the property market's going to do a lot in the next little while, but the valuation of those lower interest rates probably tells us that residential property can finish 10 to 15% higher in, in two or three years time um, if we if we navigate our way through that. Um, and, and I'm not concerned about a big collapse or a crash. I think a lot of the property that could enter the market post the monitorium will be snapped up. Again, there may be pockets of certain types of property that will come under stress around apartments or in a city living, but there'll be other parts that'll do very well, which we're seeing in regional areas um, where, where people are, are more inclined to sort of buy at the moment. Okay, and what about commercial, industrial, and, and potentially impact on, on rents for, for business owners? Any thoughts there? Look, I'll just, just make the comment that there's a lot of different cross currents affecting different parts of the commercial market. So there's the jury's still out on office. I mean, the way I look at it is that there's going to be at least a 20% demand for, for drop in, in office vis-a-vis um, -vis the idea that people will work from home for one day a week. Um, they're not going to work from home for five days a week. I think we all want to go back and work with our colleagues, but they may work from home for three days a week or for two days a week. That is what we don't know. Is it a 20% drop or a 30% drop or even a 40% drop? They're big numbers. So I'm really unsure of the office space, but there's some challenges there. And maybe it's B and C grade, I'm not sure. Um, Industrial is doing good and I think it should still do good. That mod modern manufacturing strategy combined with the sort of the supply chain resilience response from big multinationals is seeing demand for industrial hold up well. I can't, I think the, it's the end for retail. I, I just see retail being a real problem uh, just because of the way people have en masse gone online. 
And then for the other sectors, leisure, aged care, that sort of thing, I haven't got a strong view, but I think the valuations can be supportive. So I think commercial is going to be tricky and I don't, I don't think it's going to be the overall market dynamic, the valuation dynamic that's going to drive it. I think each sector is going to have its own dynamics as we work through this post-COVID world. One, one of the things, um, and it's probably more of an influence on residential property than it is on commercial, but it's probably underpinned the property market more generally. And I wouldn't mind Warren's views on this, but the, the commentary in the budget around the impact that COVID has had on net migration, um, which is, you, has been um, sort of materially positive for Australia in recent history and is anticipated to be flat to negative in the outlook period. What, what impact that has on property prices specifically and any sort of other economic implications generally? Yeah, so the, the, the government's been pretty open about their assumptions. So we're going to see a, 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 the, the net overseas migration go negative. And so we're going to be sort of going, we're having population run below its natural increase. Um, so it's going to be a significant dip, which is happening right now and right through next year. And it's not really going to recover until the middle of 2022, where they're assuming borders to open and, and migration flows to get back to normal. And they are assuming a normalization of our immigration programs, which is good news. Um, so it's su substantial. My calculations, and I looked at some work from some demographers out of the University of Queensland, the only work I've seen on this post COVID. And, and it, it looks like we're gonna lose about 300,000 people um, through this this period, this this sort of 18 to 24 month period. Now that's going to be quite big um, and it's going to affect things like the demand for food and various other things that are very highly correlated with population. But if you step back and look at it over a 50 year time horizon, it's a blip. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're thinking about investing in, a, in a, an apartment block, assuming the underlying market isn't too soft or there's too much excess supply, you've got to take that 30 year view. So, look, I, I don't want to overstate the effect of the, the decline in immigration. It, it's substantial. It'll cause some headaches. It'll, it'll, it'll create some concern. But I think it's a blip in the, in the big picture. And, and, and long-term capital needs to take the big picture view. Um, you mentioned a bit earlier, uh, Warren, um, that, you know, the, the shift to working from home um, that, that we've all experienced and, um, and, and maybe digital transformation generally that we're expecting and, and the government seems to be encouraging as well. Um, what, what impact do you think it will have on productivity as we as we sort of move into next year and the year after and, and, and then on? Well, look, I, I don't have any particular insight. I've been baffled by the weakness of productivity for some time. Maybe Joseph, with his vast business experience, might be a better place to talk about it because I think these observations are about what businesses are doing. And, and, and I think businesses are working hard on this front, but it's not showing up in the aggregate data. Well, I agree. The productivity has been a, a, a problem here for quite some time. I, I personally can't see that position improving um, over the course of the next two or three years. I, I think the, the working habits, uh, the flexibility that we'll see will be something that people will appreciate and businesses will, will and have adapted to. Uh, going back to the comment on commercial office space, uh, I mean, I, I see a very bleak future for the on-demand. Um, you know, even even within our bank, when we are talking about expanding as we are, as we are uh, office space. The discussion is well, how many people are going to want to come in every day? Yeah. And you probably find that you're at any at any given time you've got fifty to sixty percent 
of your staff in the office. Um, and, and I think that's just going to be the new reality. And it's been one of the, arguably one of the positive developments of COVID that we've been forced into uh, working habits and routines that sometimes businesses are a bit hesitant um, and, and embracing. Uh, and sometimes people were feeling a bit guilty about not being in the office for two or three days. But I think that, that, that's been a positive change. But the whole question around productivity is going to be what happens in the labor market as businesses move much more aggressively to a digital, a digital future. Um, Warren touched on it when he talked about retail in terms of property, but retail, of course, as a business model, uh, you only have to look at the number of for sale signs or lease signs if you walk along George Street or Collins Street or go uh, or, down any of the side streets. So I, th I think that's going to be a significant impact on the economy there. Um, but product the productivity prize is, a, I would say, a decade away, and it's going to be all about how quickly we embrace the digital world. Yeah, I, mean, I just reinforced that. It struck me. I mean, Airbnb was about the utilisation of property for, 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 for tourism. Um, Uber's about using cars, theoretically, that aren't being used otherwise. And now we've worked out that we can use our own homes more effectively. And to work, to get that whole recalibration of, you know, that asset base, i.e. houses and offices and everything, all sorted out and to generate the productivity that will eventually flow from a more efficient use of the asset base that we have will take 10 years because, you know, we, we theoretically right now have an excess supply of office space if indeed 25% of our house is now our office. So I, I think that's a good point Joe makes is that uh, we have to, we, we're not going to get these productivity benefits for some time because we have to work it through the system and it's going to take many years. Okay, so, so what I think would be good now is just to go through, and I'll start with, with Joseph, um, so, and, and we'll, we'll work around, but what, what do you see as the top two or maybe three most important measures that the government has introduced in the budget as that relates to SMEs? Well, I, I would look at the budget in the context of the various announcements that have been made since the, the onset of COVID, because the, the, you know, the, the JobKeeper scheme, the the government guaranteed loan version one, whilst it wasn't very successful, version two, once uh, once it's formally launched, will be, I'm sure of that, having looked at some of the details. The incentives to invest, the, 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 uh, the incentives to hire and with some support and subsidies. Um, I, I think that the government has created, and I think Warren said this, it's kind of said, look, here's everything that the business, that we can do to, to get, allow businesses to get on with investing and growing again, or bouncing out of COVID. So I think that's been, that, that whole package has been really well um, presented to the market. And even though, as I said earlier, some of the early initiatives are very much on the run, but we've learned from them and there's been a consistency. So I think that's the, the first big initiative. I think the second thing is that people should remember that whilst the level of public sector debt has, got, has grown significantly as a result. Australia still amongst the leading nations in the world remains really well placed. So this should not be seen as a big overhang and, and the cause of future problems and constraints on growth. So I think those are the two, you know, the, 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 the 
package of initiatives that have been announced, including those in the budget, together with the very strong fiscal position that the country remains in, from, from my mind, and, and also a banking system, I should say, that, you know, a strong banking system that has been offered huge incentives. If you think about the TFF, the funding facilities that are being made available, where you can go and borrow from the Reserve Bank for three years at 25 basis points. You've got government guarantees on SME credits for 50% of your credit. The banking system has also been given every support to make sure that it plays its role uh, as making, in making sure that the economy does bounce back and doesn't find itself uh, you know, caught in a, in a vacuum, if you will, in dealing with the, the consequences that we've had that have been built up since the beginning of COVID. That's very reassuring. Thanks, Joseph. What, what about you, Frank? Yeah, so I, I think um, in situations like this, there are always different perspectives and there are always different ideologies around, you know, what appropriate action looks like. I, I think um, that what you want from government in situations like this is that that responses are decisive and they're proportionate. And um, I think we've got both of those things, not just in, in the context of this budget, but in the, the government response since the onset of COVID. Um, and that has really helped the... Um, the the business community sort of and sheltered it from the uh, the the what the effects of um, the crisis might otherwise have been. In terms of the budget itself, I think there are some really welcome measures from a business perspective, and, and I think that you know in an in an economic sense, this has been a crisis that has uniquely targeted businesses, and so I think it's appropriate that the budget uniquely focused on business um, and to reignite that business confidence. So the instant asset write-off, the, the loss carry back um, initiatives are hugely welcome, and then. Um, uh, you know, if you look back at past crises and the, the the sort of the disproportionate impact it had on the employment prospects of young people, uh, I, I think the uh, the incentives to employ young people um, and to try and get ahead of that particular curve is is a really welcome one as well. Sure, Warren. Yeah, well, for, for for SMEs, um, my sort of overarching view is the government's commitment to reinvigorating the private sector economy here is, is is really important you know this doesn't come without some risk they might be going a bit early the health crisis might not be fully under control but they're committed to it it is ideological we know that other governments would maybe try and have more direct government intervention in the economy i don't believe that's the australian way they are looking after the vulnerable they are looking after low-income earners but they are trying to get the private sector back up on its feet. So I think that is really important from a small, medium business point of view. In terms of the measures, I think the the, the, the full expensing of asset purchases is phenomenal. That's sort of an all-in move uh, from the government. Who knows? I think they, they think it's going to cost them $30 billion in the next few years. We'll see. Uh, I hope it does because that'll be a sign of a good economy. Um, so I think that's really important. And then... Um, I think the final the final bit that's really important for the SMEs is is, is the wage subsidies. Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in wage subsidies um, outside of very specific things like for research staff or development staff that sort of thing. But you know, for the for the SMEs in the most heavily impacted areas, um, in hospitality and recreation, tourism, education. Um, 
that subsidy uh, combined with the lost carryback is going to you know, really help them to get through and the insolvency reforms and various other things. I think we've given as many businesses a chance of getting back up on their feet post the monitorium as possible with this budget. Um, and it, it's quite impressive, actually. I hadn't, I, I, that, that part of it's really struck me quite, quite, quite a lot in the last 12 hours or so. Thank you. And what, what, what are your thoughts as a, a question to the panel, I guess, just on the, the modern manufacturing initiative? So look, I'll sort of declare an interest up front. I've been working with the Australian Food and Grocery Council for over 12 months on um, uh, an outlook for 2030. And that's obviously the biggest manufacturing sector in Australia. Um, and, and this started pre-COVID and, and COVID really brought the arguments to us. You know, I was making the case for what is, you know, I think called strategic industry policy, not the bad old stuff, not tariffs and subsidies, but policies that the government can do to help businesses move closer to the efficient production frontier. And that is an economics term. Um, yeah, it wasn't the old car industry policy. That was bad industry policy. That didn't make those those in, those manufacturers any more globally competitive and made them less globally competitive. So look, I'm really happy that the government, uh, again, somewhat against their ideological ilk, has taken on strategic industry policy because through my work on, on the food and grocery side and, and more generally is in the international arena, um, a lot of Australian companies are, are fighting an unfair playing field because many governments all around the world are providing a lot of assistance to their industries, whether it's the Netherlands, Canada Island, or whether it's Singapore, Malaysia, or, or Korea. Um, and we are actually sort of somewhat a little bit naive on this front, I think. So I think if we've got a bit of a shift and if we can get the collaboration between government and industry and research organisations actually happening, and it's not, I've now worked in, in business, government and academia, and I, I still think we're a long way from where we should be in terms of that collaboration. But if we can start that with these six critical industries, it could open a real upside for us over the decades ahead. So it's, it's, I think that's to be commended. Thank you. Um, so I didn't hear the word innovation mentioned. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was listening for it. Um, <laughs> I, I was going. I was going to comment on innovation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm keen, keen to hear, um, and also the you know the R and D, um, the, the the changes that have happened um, to that particular initiative as well. What, what are your thoughts there, Joseph? And is it a good time to start a business or to have a tech business, for instance? Oh yeah, there is a good time. I mean, there's. I think the I totally agree with. Uh, comments made by Warren, I think the, the, the incentive to do something, I mean, so I should say when it comes to innovation, we, we as a country could be doing a lot more. Um, I think there's, there's a, the sufficient has been done recently, but there's a lot more that can be done to make, to build, um, if you think about the business that we're in, to build a fintech cent, uh, ecosystem here, there's no reason why we shouldn't be, why Singapore should be doing that and, and, and not Sydney or Melbourne. Um, the big problem for a lot of startups and, and for uh, entrepreneurs with innovative ideas here is accessing the capital markets because mm -hmm. we do not have a capital market that is supportive of what I'd call risk-taking activities. We have a capital market that loves property, that loves mature businesses and loves equity, equities. Um, but when, when you when you when you're an entrepreneur um, looking to build a new business, unproven but but well researched, uh, you will wear a lot of shoe leather 
And you'll probably find that you're, you're better jumping on a plane if you can and heading off to the United States or Israel or, you know, because the, the system is set up much more, much more, not just the tax system, but the government and the encouragement and the capital market. So there, which, and all these things have to be in place to act as a real spur for, for innovation. And so whilst good progress recently, we are still a long way behind um, in, in, trying to, in trying to create or lay the foundation for building a truly innovation-driven um, economy, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, it's sort of where I was going with the initial question that I posed to Warren around, um, you know, whether the volume of money that has been spent in, in this, and, and we understand all the reasons why it was sort of necessarily targeted and focused in the way it was, but, um, you know, will we regret it in the long term that we haven't taken this unique opportunity to really um, sort of invest in the structural changes that are necessary to create the modern economy of tomorrow. Um, and maybe that's a problem for another day and over the next, you know, the course of the next um, few years, that is something that gets addressed. But, it, you know, it is, it is something that sort of, if you were to be mildly critical of how the money was to be spent, um, that was the one thing that sort of stuck out to me. Yeah. Okay. So I guess where, where to from here is the, is the next question. So what, what should business owners be thinking about now to mitigate the broad economic risks that you feel are, are out there? I, I would, I would encourage business owners to view the, uh, this budget as being a significant seminal moment in the, in the government's support for private businesses, as Warren mentioned. Um, you, you, you can always criticize the things that haven't been done, but so much has been done over the last uh, nine months or six months or so um, to create the opportunity, the platform for businesses to bounce back and seize the opportunities at this market. And, and if, you, if you look to the GDP growth forecast for 21, 22, even if they're out six months, the, 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 everybody's saying this economy is going to bounce back. So the key for business owners is how are we going to position ourselves to make the most of this economy bouncing back? Let's not question whether it'll bounce back or not. You can always debate at the margin, the timing around it, but it'll bounce back. Mm -hmm. So what am, what, what am I doing in terms of making sure my business is ready to seize the opportunities that, this, that the, um, the budget and other announcements have created uh, and making sure that you, you seize those opportunities. And uh, my, my, my concern, if you will, is that sometimes businesses will stick their head in the sand and focus on the problem in front. They'll, they'll spend their life on the busy dance floor of day-to-day -day activity and not get onto the balcony and say, what, what opportunities are out there as a result of the various incentives and um, signals that have been sent by government uh, and I think it creates, uh, ironically, the, the, the challenges that we've all managed through could be the catalyst for a significantly more prosperous future. So I'd be a lot more, I'd be very optimistic. Um, the light is very much at the end of the tunnel, whereas it wasn't the case uh, a couple of months ago. Joseph, I love that. I love that image of life as a dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrific, especially because we're all in lockdown at the moment. It'd be nice to get out and dance with some people. So. I've, I've seen Joseph on the dance floor and I think he belongs <laughs> on the balcony. So. <laughs> 
All right. Well, look, just taking that thread a bit further, what, what kind of conversations should business owners be having with their accountants now? Frank, do you want to... Yeah, so I, and I would um, completely concur with everything Joseph said about what the business owners should be thinking about. As difficult as that seems in a, in a situation like this, um, you know, we do have a... We're in the midst of a once-in-a-generation sort of health and economic event. This is a once-in-a-generation budget that is providing unique opportunities and incentives to invest. And, and I think... Um, that those opportunities should be considered very seriously. And I think that extends to, you know, surrounding yourself with good advice because the strategic planning that's required to navigate, you know, the, the emergency that you may be in. And if, if you're not in it at the moment, you probably have been over the last, over the last six months because I don't think this has not touched any business in the economy. But now as sort of we lift our eyes a little bit and look to what life looks like at the other end, the one certainty is it's not going to look like life um, on entry into COVID. And so making those strategic pivots that may be necessary to maximize both the opportunities and mitigate against any potential threats that the new world might pose are gonna be really critical. And, and so making sure you get the right advice. Um, there's lots in this budget that needs to be decoded and understood from a business owner's perspective. Um, and, you know, selfishly, I think from a, from a banking point of view, making sure that you're having the right conversations with your banker around what appropriate structure looks like, how to, how to fund into the opportunities that will undoubtedly present themselves is going to be um, hugely critical. Terrific. So thank you very much to the awesome. panel. Thank you to, to Joseph Healy, to Frank Versace, and to Warren Hogan for joining us today. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, everyone. Look, I'd just like to um, thank... Joseph and the, the judo team for, for having me as part of the budget analysis. And I think the commitment to analyzing the budget, this, you know, this has been an important budget, but also making sure that that information gets out to frontline staff and then their customers is, is really good. So it's, it's been good fun. It's been a hectic 24 hours. Um, and I'm sure there's a bit more fun and games to happen over the days ahead, but um, uh, well done. I think it's, it's great to see, you know, taking the best of the old, the relationship banking, the human touch, the understanding of your customers and mixing it with the new, the new technologies, the platforms and the, and the ways to run the business as efficiently as possible. It's great to be involved. So thank you. Judo Bank is the owner or licensee of all intellectual property rights in this podcast, including but not limited to the copyright and any rights in the design. You are permitted to use the podcast for personal use, but not for commercial use without a license from Judo Bank. You may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy this podcast.